instead of asking them what they want their retirement to look like, I'll say, okay, how do you see the next 10 years of your life unfolding? Who are you with? What are you doing? You know, what's important to you? What are the big things that are coming up for you? This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Mark Walhout of uh, well, help financial, and we're going to have a fairly intense uh, look at retirement income planning. Lots here, lots of stuff that I find uh, people working in the retirement space don't normally think about, but you'll hear Mark specializes. He's really chosen a niche around retirement income planning, and I think you'll see the value of that, both in terms of the research that he's able to do, as well as how he interacts with clients on these questions. Uh, today's episode will be good for insurance credits in all the life insurance jurisdictions, no accident and sickness credits for those in Alberta. It will be good for a professional development credit on the IROC side. It will be good for IAS credits, and it will also cover financial planning credit from FP Canada. The color for today's episode is red. The color for today's episode is red. Mark and I have a lot of content here, so we'll get into it. I'm joined today by Mark Walhout. Mark is a sole practice advisor by himself, based out of uh, Markham, Ontario. And uh, Mark, you're both uh, life insurance and uh, funds licensed. Is that right? Or are you on the uh, IROC side? Sorry. If fund, funds licensed, MFDA. And you also carry CFP certification. Anything else there that we should know about? Uh, chartered investment manager as well. Very nice. Um, did you get the CIM out of sort of professional interest or was it specifically because there was something you wanted to do uh, from a regulatory perspective? It was, it was probably the, the, the former. It was more just a, you know, it, it is a big focus of my practice is investment management. And a lot of my personal interests, even before I formally entered the industry, uh, was on the investment side. So I, I kind of took that extra step to get that uh, designation. Yeah. Makes it. And of course, I saw this. Uh, I met you through the uh, Financial Planning Association of Canada forums, and you have a, a very, and this is why I've invited you here today, because you have this very evidence-based approach to retirement planning, which I'm looking forward to chatting about. Can you just go through who your target market, your sort of ideal client is? Yeah, so so my practice, today I serve about, about 55 households. Um, my target client, or like my typical client, is somebody that's probably somewhere between you know, 15 to 20 years from retirement and, and, and on from there. So most of my clients, 
you know, they fall somewhere between, you know, that mid forties, late forties into, you know, early seventies, early retirees. Um, so all my clients, you know, f- typically fit that mold. I have some that kind of are, are outliers from that, but for the most part, you know, their families, like I don't serve any corporate, uh, clients, no corporate retirement plans. I don't have a particular focus on business owners. For the most part, it's people that you know are saving towards retirement as their primary financial goal. Um, and and in terms of their age range, yeah, they're they're kind of in that mid to late career. They're thinking about retirement. How am I going to make this happen? Uh, and they're looking for somebody to just sort of guide them through that process. And I'm a big fan of this when somebody has figured out their niche. So I find it interesting when you say I don't serve that business owner market. Really focused on that pre-retiree or kind of late working life stage. How do you see that transitioning? So you're a fairly young guy, I'm guessing here, and you're going to then be with your clients, I assume, as they move into retirement. How do you see that changing with your with your business? Or what, what are you going to have to change as that changes? So it, I think it's a feature right now, like, you know, for people that are approaching retirement, the, you know, I'm 38. So like, and I have no plans to retire anytime soon. So, uh, you know, without, you know, actually, you know, maybe explicitly saying it like, Hey, you know, there's a really good chance that I'm going to be here throughout, you know, this entire part of your life. And I think that that gives people comfort. I guess at some point I'll have to think about my succession, right? Um, Wallhood Financial is a family business. My dad was an advisor for about uh, 25 years before I joined uh, the practice. So, and I have two kids, so it's, you know, it's probably too early to say how that's all going to unfold, but you know, you never know that might be uh, an opportunity for them to, to join the family business. But um, yeah, at some point, you know, people are going to want to have comfort that, you know, if they're going to start working with me, that I'll be there for them, you know, indefinitely or, in some way, the business will be there for them indefinitely. Um, and while I haven't yet figured that out, I know at some point, you know, we're going to have to think about, hey, you know, if we're bringing on clients that are younger than me, right? You know, as I age, you know, that's going to be in my mind and, and certainly on clients' minds, like how is this going to continue to work uh, in the future? I'm curious to hear you say you only serve about 55 households. I think that a lot of people listening will say, well, that's a, a, a relatively small uh, book from which to operate. And again, I, I think that's great. I, I know you uh, follow Michael Kitsis and I do as well. And he's a, he's a big proponent of that uh, sort of manageable client number. I can't remember what there's a proper name for this in sociology, right? About how many relationships you can maintain. You probably know it. But I'm, I'm curious then, so you, you have both your investment funds and your insurance licensing in place. Do you get pressure from your uh, dealer or MGA about... Um, sort of production levels at that client size? Do they want you out producing more? Or do you find they just kind of go along with how you build your business? So I haven't felt that pressure from Investia. So like Investia is my mutual fund dealer. They're an independent mutual fund dealer. So we, we're not tied to any type of you know production numbers. Now, you know, 55 is is kind of the rough number of households that I support today like I am looking to grow, right? So I, I do think that on the top end, as far as you know, being a solo advisor, which I plan to continue to be, I think that that sweet spot number is somewhere between 75 and 85 households where, you know, I feel like, okay, I can, I can have a, a good relationship with these people and, and add value um, and do all the things I need to do from a financial planning standpoint. Um, anything over that number would probably start to feel unsustainable. But back to your question, like, no, Investia does not, you know, have any type of production quotas. Um, PPI is my MGA for life insurance. 
or maybe I'll say if they do, I haven't heard about them yet. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, and I think yeah, growing to that 75 or 80 person or 80 household range sorry, still keeps you in that manageable number of relationships. I know plenty of people listening to this will have four or 500 or maybe a thousand or more clients under their umbrella somewhere. And it just feels like a lot of relationships to manage. Yeah, I think it comes back to your goals, right? Like my goal... My goal for this business is to really just create a uh, is to create an income for me and for my family, right? Like, there, I don't have a, a dream to to grow a massive practice. Um, so, so really, it's just knowing what I like to do every day and and building a practice that sort of satisfies that while being able to create a really good experience for clients. Yeah, perfect. Um, so, when did you start this? Uh, in-depth dive into retirement planning. When did this start to become a, a focus for you? So, so I joined my dad in his practice in 2016. And when I joined, I actually was entering from another field. I was in the information technology field for um, about a decade and a half. So I worked for a large manufacturer and a couple of um, consulting companies, information technology services companies. So when I joined the business, my, my original passion for this business started from investing. I think a lot of maybe not unlike a lot of people like interested in the, the cool, fun investing side of the business. So when I joined, I thought, OK, I'm going to focus my practice on serving you know, young people like millennials like me, helping them with investment management. And then when I entered and started working with my dad, I think like a lot of advisors, the client base looks, you know, demographically a lot like the advisor. So he attracted people that were very much kind of like in his cohort. And my dad was getting ready to retire, which was what brought me into the business. And so the, the more that I started working in the practice, I was working with these clients that, that were getting ready to retire. And the, the more I spent time in that space, the more I said, okay, there's a real need here for people to get, you know, good financial planning advice uh, specific to this discipline. And, and from there, I just, you know, the more I kind of dug into it, the more I really started to enjoy it. And the more I realized that um, the things that we can do or that I can do as an advisor for these clients, um, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily that it's special, but it's, it's unique enough that, that I thought, okay, if I can focus here and create a good competency, I think that that's a, a fairly compelling uh, offering for clients. Do you have uh, lessons learned from your father's retirement? Um. Lessons learned from my dad's retirement. I mean, he, my dad, my dad was a big fan of, you know, keeping things very simple. And I've learned that from him. I think that maybe we all kind of go through this as an advisor, like we start and then we, we try to overcomplicate everything. And, um, and I think that comes from a place of wanting to do really good work, right? Like you, you really want to, um, you know, be extremely thorough and make sure that your recommendations are extremely, um, extremely on point, which is still the case. But my dad, what he taught me, um, as I transition from him is just sort of as much as you can, you know, try to keep things as simple as possible. When you speak to people, speak to them, you know, like the way that I try to explain everything to my clients is I'm like, I'm explaining it to my mom, right. And my mom's a smart, a smart person. She was a professional, but I always have this in my head is just, you know, um, keep things as simple as possible and don't try to keep things or don't think, make things more complicated than they need to be. And, uh, as far as, you know, his, his retirement goes, I think he's kind of kept those principles in place for, for his planning as well. That's perfect. I'm guessing with a background in IT and the CIM under your belt, you have more than enough capability to make things compli complicated. Yeah. So understanding that you're trying to keep that as straightforward as possible for the client, 
So what systems or methods are you using today in implementing retirement plans or helping your clients to implement their retirement plans? Yeah, so everything that I that I do for clients really centers around the the Navi plan financial planning software uh, platform. So I tried uh, a number of different um, software uh, software programs or financial planning approaches, and the, where I've landed is that doing cash flow based planning is really you know the 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 method that I find works the best with clients. Um, I feel like people live a lot more in, inside of their cash flow plan. Like people can wrap their head around, okay, how am I getting money every month? How am I getting paid every year? And Navi Plan, I think, does a really good job of um, doing cash flow based financial planning. So um, I would say that sort of would be like the center of my you know technology stack or in terms of like my process. So everyone, when, whenever I start with a new client, it, it always starts with a conversation around. Um, you know, their vision for retirement, um, figuring out how they see their life unfolding over the decades, you know, leading into retirement and into retirement, and then building, you know, financial plans, you know, really that are driven by cash flow modeling uh, in the, in the Navi plan financial planning um, platform. Like that's really been kind of the genesis or the, like the focus of, of uh, my planning approach. So given that, let's say you're sitting down with a, a couple in their early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, something like that, relatively new engagement, right? And you're looking at their current set of expenses to determine what their cash flow needs are going to be in retirement. How do you build that? Sure. Yeah. So so usually it, it is a lot of discussion with people to figure out how they're spending money now. And when I started, when I started, and it's evolved over time, like I, I find that people, when you ask them what their goals are going to be, they have a hard time with that. So I typically try to maybe relieve pressure from people by just saying, well, let's just talk about how your life looks now financially, right? Like let's, let's talk about how you're spending money now. Um, and we try to get as close as we can. Like it's kind of, it's kind of like horseshoes. Like the, the goal is not to be perfect. Right. And the goal is not to, um, you know, necessarily put a budget in place for people, but it's just to help them understand and get visibility into how they're spending now. And then I just assume that in retirement, that their patterns of living are going to look a lot like the patterns that they have currently, right? And then we sort of will, will kind of adjust from there. But that's always a starting point. It's a starting point to get people off the block, so to speak, because I find that if you try to say, okay, we'll talk about your goals and like, let's just create this completely different you know, reality of living in retirement. Um, it, it's just hard for people to do that. It's hard to get buy-in. I like to just start with people where they're at today and then, and then, you know, sort of build that conversation from there. Um, I find that that that's kind of been an approach that, that works better for me. I do agree with that, Mark. I think that yeah, your current spending and current lifestyle are going to be the best indicators of what at least the first call a decade of retirement is going to look like. Do you have if thoughts about then shifting, like, do you do, uh, you know, first years of retirement are going to look like this and middle years and late years? How does that show up in your, in your planning? You know what? I, I have done less of that as time's gone on. And I do try to have conversations with people that say, okay, let's envision decades, right? So let's, if I'm sitting down with a client that's 45 or a, a, a couple that's roughly the same age, let's say they're 45 and instead of asking them what they want their retirement to look like, I'll say, okay, how do you see the next 10 years of your life unfolding? Who are, who are you with? What are you doing? You know, what's important to you? What are the big things that are coming up for you? Right. And then, and then take it the next 10 years after that. And I'll go decade by decade all the way up until age 95 or hundred. 
So what, what people will do is they'll naturally like two things happen. Number one, they'll start to themselves say, okay, you know, once I hit 85, you know, you know, let's say from age 55 to age 75, I plan to every year take two trips, you know, somewhere warm and, you know, without me telling them, Hey, like, do you think maybe you're going to knock that travel off when you turn 75? Like they tell their own story. And I find that when people, you know, are kind of authoring their own story of retirement, I think it becomes more like you get more buy-in people are, are more engaged with way. And then the second thing that happens is that people realize like how long retirement actually is. So when you start to say, okay, you know, if I'm going to retire at age 60, man, I'm planning four decades of retirement. Um, and people get to realizing that that's a fairly long period, but back to your original question, like, um, I'm finding that certain things are dropping off in later stages of retirement, mostly that discretionary spending, that travel expense, um, some of that leisure activity, people are self-identifying that that's probably not going to go on all the way until they're like age 95 or hundred. But I don't, I don't typically do kind of like phase one, phase two, phase three. Like I'm not placing those labels on retirement uh, phases for people. I'm letting them sort of define that themselves. In your projections then, Mark, would you sort of just level it out for that entire three or four decades? Is that kind of the, the default then? This might go back to your simplicity discussion before, right? Yeah, more more often than not, yes, unless they themselves have specifically said, like, we're going to do this, or that the plan calls for it, right? So if, we're, if we do, if we build a plan for retirement, and they say that they want to achieve a certain level of spending, and then, you know, we run the plan, and the plan says, look, this is not sustainable, I will tell the client, say, look, like you have choices. And then that's when you, you get into the conversation of, of um, trade offs, right? So you, you, you can choose to you know, lower your spending expectations indefinitely. So like lower that bar indefinitely, or you can spend more earlier and plan to spend less later on. But that that's when that conversation of choices um, starts to come into play with clients. And what about uh, healthcare or long-term care and the associated risks there? How do you, is that something you introduce? Do you find people normally will bring that into the conversation themselves Mm -hmm. it, it all depends on the client's experience, like people that have had that personal experience um, with family members, you know, certainly they're more sensitive to, to those needs, right? Um, a lot of my clients, they own their homes, they plan to live in their homes indefinitely. So yes, like we have to, you know, layer that in. So whenever I do have conversations with people that say, look, I'm, I plan to, you know, strip my spending way, way down as I get into that last decade or two, I, I remind them that, you know, there, there are certain things in their life that are going to continue to to have costs that they need to factor in. And yeah, if you plan to you know live in your in your home uh, until the day you pass away, like you need to have some provision in the plan that there's going to be some extra costs here that we need to plan for um, near, in those later years. Do you find so we're recording this uh, while we're in the in Alberta, we're in the midst of a hardcore lockdown right now. Do you find that your conversations about this over the last six or eight months have been more realistic about uh, those expectations in the, in the later years of retirement? Yeah, I, I would say people are definitely more receptive, right? And, and I think one of the questions that, you know, we plan to talk about is things that, um, you know, things that clients need to think about more and things that are on my mind. And I think certainly estate planning and planning for those costs, you know, later in life, that's, those are definitely in the forefront. I'd say that um, what's gone on this year has certainly brought people 
the realization that, yeah, bad things that are unexpected can happen in life, right? And so if you were kind of planning, hey, you know what, I'm healthy now, that means I'm probably going to be healthy indefinitely. Um, you know, bad things can happen, right? So um, I think that people are more receptive now to conversations about, hey, like, what do we do when something unexpected happens? And if we lose our health, and, you know, and we need to have some level of special care as we get older, you know, how are we going to pay for that? What's that, what's that plan going to look like? I think that people are more receptive to that conversation now. Perfect. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and now you've got this idea about expenses, about costs or the, the client and you have worked together to develop this. Uh, can you talk about income modeling then? What does that look like? Cause you said that's so important, right? That's a big function of Navi plan you had mentioned is that ability to model income. So how do you have that conversation or what tools do you use here? Yeah. So once I built out that kind of ideal cash flow plan, then we drop in client assets. So the, I call them building blocks. So things like re retirement savings is a building block. Uh, pension plan is a building block. Canada pension plan, old age security. Those are all building blocks that when you put them into the model um, that they, they then are, everything is driven towards satisfying that cash flow need through retirement. And then, you know, in terms of how that bears out for clients, it, it really just comes down to once the client has built out that cash flow plan for me, then I'm in Navi plan. I'm putting in all those assets. I'm trying to identify, okay, is there, first of all, is there enough here? Like, do we have a workable and viable plan? Like, can we actually achieve this income for this client through their retirement? And then once I've got that answer, then it comes to, okay, like, let's, let's figure out, okay, what's the optimal way for us to draw down off this pool of assets in such a way that we're being mindful of taxes and, um, and make sure that we're as efficient as we can be when we're drawing down the assets, uh, through the rest of retirement. Um, and then, and then showing it to clients again in that cash flow through that cash flow lens. Um, you know, those are the steps. So it's figuring out, you know, ideal anticipated cash flows, putting the building blocks together in Navi plan, tweaking for taxation, trying to find efficiencies wherever we can, um, and then and then showing it back to the client in that model. So I'm going to ask about three products here that have, let's say, at least some degree of controversy or differing opinions. How do you think about annuities, reverse mortgages, long-term care insurance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I think that annuities and like those products, annuities, long-term care, reverse mortgages. I think that those are super important building blocks. Like I have clients that have, you know, annuity products in their portfolios. Um, I think that long-term things like reverse mortgages are going to become more important uh, for clients to think about. And it's just a function of a lot of people that I work with or that I come across, they, they own their homes. Like I think, you know, a lot of people, they approach retirement. If they don't have um, a huge pile of retirement savings, a lot of them will own their house. And, you know, I don't know yet whether it's um, a conversation that a lot of people want to have about, hey, let me now, you know, this asset that I've spent so much time paying the bank back for, you know, entering into a reverse mortgage. But it is a huge piece on most retirees' balance sheets in Canada. And, I think that there is a stigma around that product set that, you know, as time wears on potentially could and should uh, be changed because I think it's, it's, it's hard to, for us to ignore the fact that, you know, if a client wants to live a life in retirement, that's fulfilling to them, but they're depriving themselves of the things that they need or that they want while they sit on this asset, that's eventually going to become a legacy for their next generation. I just have a hard time reconciling that. Um, and when it comes to things like annuities, um, you know, I'm, 
I use um, Monte Carlo simulations through NaviPlan. And so my attitude is like, I'm, I'm interested in anything that's going to give us a high degree of uh, chance of success, right? And, and I know, and I try very carefully to explain to clients that the models that we're using are not, they don't have any predictive power, um, but we're just trying to limit or I guess reduce the, the range of outcomes as much as we can. So, um, yeah, I have clients that have, you know, annuities as part of their income stream. Um, you know, it's, I think it's going to be an important part, um, going forward as well, because people are living longer lives. Right. So, um, kind of in the same vein as I think that reverse mortgages are going to become important, the longer that we're living, um, you know, the more that having, you know, good solid guaranteed streams of income in retirement is going to become more, um, important for people. So, I, I mean, I love the Monte Carlo simulation as a retirement tool. And essentially what you're saying there is like the first decade, you don't get much variability in your Monte Carlo. Second decade, now the it starts, now the, the range of outcomes starts to spread. Third decade, now you're really trying to tighten up that range of outcomes in those third, fourth decades of retirement, right? That's, and I think people respond. I assume then, do people tend to focus on the, the bottom half of Monte Carlo, or do you find that people focus on the top half? Do they come back and say, well, it takes some of the opportunity out for me? Most people focus on the negative outcome, right? I think it's natural to say, look like, oh, you know, in the 90th percentile, let's say there's a 90% chance of success, right? You know, people are, are naturally going to focus on, hey, like, what does that scenario of ruin look like? And then I have to then sort of guide them to say, look, it's just as likely that we hit this scenario of ruin as you know, you tripling your net worth in you know the 35th year of your retirement, right? Like these are equally likely outcomes, right? And the nice thing about having this ongoing planning relationship with clients is I tell them, you know, we're gonna keep doing this over and over again, right? Like we don't do a Monte Carlo once and then and then never do it again. We realize that things are gonna change as your retirement unfolds, but we're gonna keep running this exercise A to figure out if we're trending in a bad direction that we can make adjustments, but then also that if we're trending in a good direction that you can also realize some of the, the, the benefits from that. So if your plan is going better than expected, then that gives you more options. So I think people respond well to that. I don't, I don't get a lot of people fixating on those negative outcomes or very least if they identify them, then I try to coach them back and say, okay, this we're mindful of that potential, but we don't want to dwell there it's just as likely as we have a good outcome. We're just going to keep managing this together um, as we go on. And people tend to respond well to that. I think it's worth noting here. A lot of people would see the Monte Carlo as a sort of projection of investment returns. And it may be projection is not the perfect word here, but, and I, I think you're doing it better than that here. It's, you're not projecting investment returns. You're projecting retirement outcomes. Yes. Yep. Yeah, the, the Monte Carlo tells us the chance of likelihood that the client may not be able to make that withdrawal that they plan to in that year, right? And again, it's it just comes back to, you know, I keep saying cash flow modeling, like cash flow retirement planning, just because that's what people relate to, right? Like people understand that, and I can explain that in their language. Like we're trying to create a plan that gives us a very high degree of uh, chance that we're going to be able to spend the way that you plan to spend in retirement, you know, for a long time. Agree. That's. I think it's important that people are getting a, a realistic look at what what risks there are in retirement, and I think that's a good way to do it. Um, any other tools you would bring in there, Mark? You know what, NaviPlan is pretty much like it's it's pretty much all that I use. Uh, I I learned 
back in my days working in technology, like there's, there's no end to the amount of things you can use. Right. Um, but I think, you know, there's, you can always make something work with a good, like with one or two good tools, right? Like, meaning that if you just focus really hard on making the thing that you've chosen work well for you and learn it and, and use it properly, I think it can do, you know, the vast majority of the things that you need it to. So I've chosen NaviPlan and it's been, um, it's been a good tool for me. So from a planning perspective, you know, the, the, the software is not the, the product, right? The software allows, it, it informs decisions. It helps us have, it helps us have good quality conversations and, and help aid us in decisions, right? So um, you know, it's just one, one piece of it. Um, but as far as the tools themselves go, like NaviPlan is pretty much it for me. Like I use um, some tools from uh, dimensional fund advisors that they make available to advisors just to model out uh, different portfolios, like you know, historical asset allocations and things like that. But those would just be like illustration tools to support the um, investment recommendations. Um, but as far as planning goes, NaviPlan is pretty much pretty much it for me. Perfect. This is a approximately right versus precisely wrong outcome. Exactly. Hundred percent. Yeah. So I know that, and again, it's this original uh, posting that I saw of yours on the FPAC forums that uh, led me to this conversation. So clearly you do a lot of reading and research in the area of retirement planning. Can you just go through the, the resources you use here, what you like in this area? Sure. So, so when I started, um, the first, I guess, big author in the industry that I got introduced to was Nick Murray. So Nick Murray's a, an advisor coach based in New York. He has a monthly newsletter and I still consume that newsletter. Like as far as, um, you know, the way that advisors should, should think about serving clients and the attitudes that I think that advisors should try to instill in their clients about, you know, long-term thinking and optimism for the future. Um, you know, Nick's writing to me is still like the top of the pile. It's, it's fantastic. Um, so I, I'm still a, an avid reader of his newsletter and his books. And then once I got into the industry, I started to get introduced to this concept of evidence-based investing that was introduced to me through um, the folks at PWL Capital out in Ottawa. So Cameron Passmore and Ben Felix's podcast, The Rational Reminder. I'm an avid listener to that to that podcast. So, you know, the, the way I kind of came to that was I I learned about Dimensional Fund Advisors. They kind of told me about um, PWL Capital, and I kind of became a big fan of 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 that podcast and their content. Um, and that led me on to books from Larry Swedro. A lot of the things that I talk about uh, come from Larry's books. So it, you could probably see it, you know, the listeners can't see, but behind me, you, you might see a couple of Larry's books uh, on the pile there. So your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement, I think is probably one of my favorites that, that he has. Uh, I refer back to that one quite a bit. Um, you mentioned Michael, Michael Kitsis. I'm a big fan of Michael Kitsis's podcast and his blog. Um, and other retirement researchers, Wade Fow and John Guyton, which was sort of the topic, his, his approach to retirement income guardrails, which is the, 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 the thing that I was writing about on the FPAC forum that brought us to this discussion. Um, I'm a big fan of John Guyton. I, may, I don't know that I would implement an approach like his, but I would say that I'm a big fan of any approach that allows you to take the um, the behavior of people and people's preferences and their, and take kind of human nature and then marry that with evidence and, um, you know, evidence-based approaches, right? I think it's kind of this whole right brain versus left brain thing. The planning work that I'm trying to do for clients, you're trying to make sure you're doing everything right, kind of on the left brain side, like the mathematical scientific side, but you need to get people to 
understand it because most of our decisions are guided by our right brain, right? Our emotional side. So um, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, how do I bridge those gaps? How do I do things that make a lot of sense in terms of proof and evidence and um, make the math of it make sense, but then also do it in such a way that you can get somebody to buy in and stick with something for multiple decades. Yeah. And I know why John Guyton's work is sort of, it's these retirement guardrails, right? Which kind of plays off of the the Bill Bingen 4% rule, right? Sort of a variation on that. And is that stuff you would ever talk to a client about or stuff you would ever actually see showing up in a client conversation? Uh, I haven't used that work, but I love the power of something that you could show. Like, I think that the concept of guardrails is a very uneasy to understand for an average person, right? An average person that's getting ready to retire, you could sit down with a yellow pad of paper and a pen and explain to them, okay, we're going to start here. Here's your portfolio value. We're going to take out a certain percent. And if the portfolio drops to a certain level, we're going to reduce your spending from this portfolio. I, I think that that is a, a very like a conversation that you could easily have with most people. So for that reason, it's an, it's an appealing approach because it's, it, 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 it's something that you could simply get across and people could grasp it and you could probably get them to stick with that uh, for the long run. Um, some of the things that we, you know, we went back and forth about on the forum, it's, it's more about, you know, how, how realistic is that for, somebody, are you ready to accept the different range of outcomes that could come with that approach? If you have a sustained bear market, um, based on where we're at right now with, you know, equity valuations being very, very high and bond yields being very, very low. Like, I just don't know if I'd be able to sleep at night if I was, um, you know, using that type of a model and withdrawing something like 5% from a portfolio. I just, I'm not saying it it won't work. I'm just saying that I don't think that I want to make that, like, I don't want to try to make that work. There's a big difference between being able to sleep at night and being able to math it out on an Excel spreadsheet, right? Those are. Yeah, for sure. And and I, you know, the way that I'm doing it, like the way that I am doing it with Monte Carlo and with NaviPlan, it is a dynamic spending uh, approach as well. Like we're just using Monte Carlo to run those tests. And if we are midway through retirement and it looks like we're way ahead of the plan, like, yeah, you can take more out of the plan. Um, so it is dynamic in, in that regard, it's just a different approach. Any other resources you wanted to comment on there? I know that you are consuming a ton of content. Yeah. So those are, yeah, I, I probably listed the big ones. A lot of those are us based except for the folks, uh, up in, in Ottawa at PWL. Um, but anything that's written by Alexandra McQueen, like her books with Moje Malevsky, how to pensionize your nest egg. Those are favorites of mine. Anything that's written by Jamie Gollenbeck in terms of taxes, like Jamie's Jamie's constantly putting stuff up. Jamie from CIBC, um, I love reading his stuff. Anything from Jason Heath, he he writes for Money Sense. He owns um, a firm up in Markham. Um, you know, whenever I see anything written by those folks, I'm I read it immediately because they all have their own unique approaches, right? So, and I like to I like to kind of get it get insights from a lot of different angles. Um, and know, cause every, every client situation is a bit different. And, and so, you know, it's good to have different uh, viewpoints, uh, and insights from, from thought leaders, especially in Canada. We had Alexandra on the podcast season three, episode four or five thereabouts. I can't remember, but, uh, yeah, she's amazing. She's been a great, uh, great supporter of ours as well. Um, mm-hmm. what about, uh, rebalancing then rebalancing? And I think this is a great time to have this conversation, rebalancing leading into retirement and then rebalancing in retirement. 
how much uh, thought do you put into this and how much of a conversation do you have with your clients about this? So I think rebalancing is very important. Um, I use asset allocation portfolios almost exclusively for retiree portfolios. So Dimensional Fund Advisors has pre-built models that are set um, different equity and fixed income mixes. And they're single line item portfolios and they're rebalanced by Dimensional Fund Advisors. Um, Their portfolio management team takes care of that. And I tend to use the same asset allocation across all different account types. And there's, that is, you know, there are people that agree with that and there's people that don't. There's a lot of evidence that says that the act of, you know, asset location doesn't add uh, a tremendous amount of additional expected return to portfolios. So for that reason, I, I'm completely happy to have, you know, the same asset allocation across different account types. Um, so that makes the conversation very easy. I tell clients, we don't have to do this work, right? We, it's being taken care of for us. And in the act of rebalancing, on a regular basis, you're doing the right things from an investment perspective, you're selling high to buy low, which is, you know, the the proper thing to do. Most people tend to do the opposite. If they're left to their own devices, they chase returns at the top and they panic out at the bottom. Um, So having, having an approach to do rebalancing, like in reality, I don't think if I was doing it any other way, I would do a good job. Right. Like I, I'm, I'm a solo advisor. As far as I know, there aren't really yet great tools in Canada to do like automated rebalancing. I know in the U S they have a lot of really great tools for that. Um, I just don't think that if I was doing individual, um, funds separating out, uh, different asset classes, equities, fixed income that I could, I could stay on top of it. So the asset allocation portfolios to me make tons of sense. Do you get pushback from clients on that where they say, well, really, like I could go set up an account at a robo and I could have it do my rebalancing for me. Do you ever get that from clients? I've never gotten that from a client. I've never gotten that. I mean, I guess in theory, yeah, they, they could, right? Like I think it's, it's as much the, the issues that you kind of create for yourself, maybe in your head or they're, they almost become bigger in your head than they are in real life. You know what I mean? Um, I just try to explain things to people like this is the best thing that I can think of to do for you. Right. This is the thing that I think makes the most sense for you. Um, if they, I haven't had a client ever say like, oh, well, that just seems so simple and straightforward. Why don't I just go do this myself? If they said that, then I would say that's great. Right. Like I, I think that there's people out there that could, that absolutely can and are doing this work on their own. They don't need necessarily to have an advisor doing this work for them. And I'd say, you know, more power to them if they want to do that. They're just not going to be my client and that's okay. It sounds like by time you would have ever had a conversation like that come up, you've done a pretty deep dive into retirement income, retirement lifestyle, all those mm-hmm. sort of questions that I think would, let's say, answer the value proposition for the client. I, I can see why you don't get that pushback. I just think it's interesting that you've never had anybody sort of push back at that. You, you know what, Jason, like maybe they don't say it to me and then, and then they, but then they say it to each other after the meeting's over, you know, like, uh, it's possible, but I, I don't think it's an issue. I, again, I just, I approach it. I always approach it as this is the, this is the best thinking I have for you. If I thought that picking individual funds and rebalancing them myself was a better approach for clients, I would find a way to do that. Right. But because I don't, and because there's no, I haven't seen any compelling evidence that says that, um, you know, asset location and, and individual, you know, holdings for different asset classes is going to enhance returns for clients because I haven't read that, that evidence. Like I'm not going to go down that path. So 
to me, I, it, I feel fantastic about every conversation I have with clients. Cause I'm like, this is what I think makes the most sense for you. It's simple. It's going to yield. I believe it's going to yield you a good outcome. And so my conscience is clear. I feel great about it. And if they want to um, engage, then they do. And if they don't, then they don't. And that's okay. So I'm, I'm interested in here. Have you had a client where you sat down with that person and they just could not, like there, there was not a prospect of them retiring in the way that they wanted to do? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find that most people, I, I like earlier on, like, and I, you know, I've been doing this for like four years. So that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, we're not drawing on a huge amount of past, right. But I would worry a lot about that. Like when I would like in the first like, year or so, but I found that most people, they, I wouldn't be ever be surprising anybody with news like that. Um, if, if they had really unrealistic expectations then I had to kind of reflect that back to them and say, look, like, what you want to do here with what you have, like, you know, this train is probably not going to get to your station. You know what I mean? Um, people aren't surprised by that. And then they, they very quickly get into, they're very open to having the conversation about here are the things that you can do. Right. And then we get them onto a positive path. Um, I find that just the plainer you put it to people and the simpler you make it when you speak to them, the easier that those conversations go. And very, I've never had a client where I've said, where they've said, okay, let's go through the planning exercise. And I tell them, okay, like you're going to have these constraints, right? Like, or, you know, I expect that this portfolio is, is probably going to give you a, a return of, you know, X percent, right? Like I set return expectations for clients. Like I, I can't, I can't even recall a time where somebody looked at me and been like, this is absolutely crazy. Like, you know, I should be way better than this or the returns that we should get are way better than this. Like I've just haven't had that experience. Um, and again, it's possible that after I leave the meeting that they say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. We're going to go down the street or whatever, but it just hasn't been my experience. Perfect. Now, we just had this uh, paper come out from Bonnie Jean McDonald about uh, holding off on Canada Pension Plan. Mm -hmm. I've seen tons of discussion around this paper. I think that if nothing else, it, it has people talking. What are your thoughts about early and late CPP? delayed OAS? Mm -hmm. I think that delaying CPP makes tons of sense. Um, whenever I have a conversation with clients, I show them the, the outcome of, of delaying CPP. Um, in a lot of cases, I'll get like formal quotes from uh, Doug Runchy from, um, from BC like his, the, you know, Doug's service is outstanding. Like I've referred people to him that they can engage with him directly, but I'll bring it into my planning exercises as well, just because it's, it's fantastic. Um, but the way I put it to people is especially these days with, you know, valuations being where they are and yields being where they are, like it, you'd have a hard time convincing me that anyone can get a better return on their, you know, investment than deferring CPP out at least somewhat. Right. Um, so that, that's generally how I approach it. Now, again, with the big caveat, as always, like everyone's situation is different, right? Like, you know, you're, you're the age, age discrepancy between the individual and their spouse, their health, their other sources of income, what we think taxation is going to look like for them. There's a whole bunch of different factors here. But generally, if you can get a guaranteed return, like the return you get from deferring Canada Pension Plan, um, and you can guarantee that inflation adjusted for the rest of your life. Like to me, we have to have that conversation before we can have the conversation about buying more annuitized uh, income, retirement income. Like we have to look at that because uh, 
it just, it's right there for us. And there's so many people that don't take advantage of it. So I'm a big fan of, um, at very least being intentional about looking at those different, uh, scenarios for sure. Do you find your clients are receptive to the idea of holding off on CPP until later? They are receptive to it, but the, there's a human nature side of it where deferring the opportunity to get an income is very hard for people. Um, so they're absolutely receptive when you show them the numbers and you show them like, here's, here's what the impact on your income will be as you get into, you know, the later stages of your retirement, they become more receptive, but you are very much pushing against the force of that human nature of, well, I could be getting a check right now from CPP. I'm not getting a check right now. And I know it's for, you know, intellectually, I know it's for my own good. And I know that it's going to be better for me down the road, but I'm having to, in the interim, draw down off of my savings and people don't like to spend savings. So um, they're absolutely receptive to it. You need to, you know, I I feel like I have to have the conversation a couple of times and walk them through it. Um, But you are pushing against that, that force of human nature a bit with that conversation. What about old age security? How does old age security fit into that mix then? So, so usually I approach the conversations in tandem. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the benefit of delaying OAS is slightly, you know, not as good as deferring of CPP. I approach the conversations together. Um, but the, you know, Fred Vitesse has, has talked about this um, from Morneau Chappelle and his, the approach that I think that he advocates is, you know, take your old age security and defer your Canada pension plan because he realizes that the, the behavioral difficulty of deferring both is, is almost too much for a lot of people to overcome. Um, you know, I, I would say, yes, I approach them kind of the same together, but it, again, like everyone's situation is a bit different. So I try to plan for each situation a little bit differently. So just going back to the annuities and reverse mortgages conversation, mm-hmm. uh, I know a lot of advisors will push back on those products and say, well, those are going to deplete the estate that the client's going to leave behind. Mm-hmm. How do you integrate that estate planning conversation into the retirement planning conversation? So on the, the question of depletion of the estate, I would say there's not a lot of clients when I talk to them and I let them speak, like I let, like I encourage them to tell me what's important to them. Very few will voluntarily say like, it's really important to me to leave a big estate for my kids. Um, so I've never felt compelled to make that a priority for them if they haven't already told me that it's a priority. So if that's the pushback on those products, I would say like, you know, let's ha- let's make sure that the client is articulating what it, what's important for their estate versus us assuming that it's important for them to leave a legacy behind for their kids. So that's just, that would be my, we'll call it my beef with that pushback. Um, but when it comes to estate planning, um, you know, it's, it always starts with the basics, right? So like, you know, do you, does the client have a will and powers of attorney that are reasonably up to date that reflect their wishes are the people that they've identified in those documents to help them manage their affairs? Do they live locally? Do they, have the capacity to be able to perform that role. Um, what are the the, finan- the family dynamics between the kids? Um, just sort of under- helping them think through that process. And where, wherever there are gaps, what I try to do is just sort of write those out for clients, like just very simple memos, like memo format to say like, here's here's some things that I think that you would need to get addressed. And I'll make some recommendations for them of lawyers and accountants that I think would be good fits for them. Um, that they can work with, but then act in a supporting role to make sure that they get um, 
those documents in place. That's probably, you know, for every single client that's happening. Um, you know, in terms of planning, uh, I like to use visuals as much as I can. So I have sort of very simple PowerPoint visuals that I've created, like just with squares and circles and arrows, just to show like, here's what happens to RSPs, like, you know, assets that don't go through the estate. Here's how this gets paid out to your beneficiaries. Here's how quickly it happens. Here's what drops into your estate. Here's the uh, taxes that you need to expect to pay. And NaviPlan has some really fantastic reports that illustrate um, the impact of taxes and probate on uh, estates. You can show people like if you pass away, you know, at certain different times, you know, assuming that your assumptions hold true, which we know that over long periods of time, it's hard to know, but just to give people that idea of, okay, if something were to happen to us, here's what would happen to our things. And now let's make sure that we have, you know, the proper documents and people around that to make sure it all kind of goes smoothly. As far as you said, you would help the client out to make sure that they get that stuff in place. Mm-hmm. What does, is that just like a follow-up email, phone call, some technology solution, harass them until they get it done. What's that look like? It's probably, it's probably more the, 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 the latter. Like it's, uh, it's, it's simple. Like, you know, we'll, we'll meet together and I'll say like, here are the things that you've told me are important to you. Right. In their words, right. Like it's important that, you know, I, that we, that our assets get split between our three kids. I'm just using an example. Right. And then I'll identify for them. Like, here are the things that I think need to be changed or updated um, and then I'll, I'll share that with them and I'll make introductions for them if they want me to. And then I have a regular rhythm where I'm following up with clients. And if it's on our list from the last meeting, then I'll make sure that I raise it. Right. And especially with estate planning, like you, you find, I find at least you got to follow up a couple times and you got to do it in a way that you're not, you know, you're in, you're letting them know that it's, ur- that it, there's urgency behind it, that it's important. Right. Um, but at the same time, like you, you want to, you also don't want to shame them and make them feel really bad. Like there's not a lot of people that are, that are really uh, itching to stay on top of their estate planning documents. So it's just important to just gently. And I would say almost like lovingly just sort of nurture them along that path to say, okay, like, okay, well, you can't, we can't do anything about the fact that we didn't do anything about it in this last three months. So now, you know, what, what are we going to do to change that for the next three months and just kind of help nudge them along that path. Perfect. Um, what do you see as the biggest risks today for a retirement portfolio? So I think the, the Larry Swedger talks about it in his book, um, the uh, Your Guide to Successful and Secure Retirement. He calls them the four horsemen of the retirement apocalypse, which I find to be very dark and, <laughs> and scary. But he, re- he identifies uh, lengthening lifespans, uh, very low starting bond yields, very high starting equity valuations, and the increased cost of long-term care for for retirees. Like I would, I'm just going to borrow from Larry. Like those are to me the big issues that I think about is, um, you know, with with equity valuations being very high, particularly in the United States, less so in in Canada and internationally in emerging markets. But you know, we're starting from a place where can we expect a 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio to generate you know eight nine percent returns for the next 20 years? Like I I, I just don't I don't think so. I think that's going to be very hard. I don't know what the future holds, but it is hard for me to think that people should be able to expect that. Um, so I think that. Um, that's a big risk. Um, the other risks that I think about are, you know, there's still a lot of Canadians that are invested in, in fairly expensive products and especially on the investment side. I think that I'm not saying that 
all products that have costs to them are bad, right? But I'm saying that there's there's probably, for clients that I come across that are new to my practice, it's just simply showing them that by saving a lot of you know fees in, in terms of um, the, the management expense ratios on mutual funds, like that's just, you know, a fairly, you know, in terms of playing the long game, if we can take the costs that they're spending on um, their mutual fund fees down by a half or close to a half, like that's just going to bode well for their um, for their portfolio in the long run. Um, Can- Canadians, by and large, we still do have a fairly heavy home country bias. Like in our portfolios, I see that all the time with new clients. Like a lot of overweight to Canadian uh, equities in particular. Um, so getting more global with our investment portfolios to me, like that's, these are just simple things that I try to do, um, for clients. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, longevity, high starting equity valuations, low bond yields, you know, those things are, I would say big risks right now, which going back to the beginning part of the conversation, why I think that other approaches are going to become more important things like looking at reverse mortgages. Um, we haven't yet seen a lot of uptake from the, you know, life insurance carriers on advanced life deferred annuities yet. But I think that that product, you know, that's an amazing development. If some com- I, I can see why certain companies don't want to sign on to that uh, product set because like, you know, who, like who wants to stand behind that guarantee right now, I suppose, with, with everything else we've discussed. But that could be a big, um, a big lever that needs to be pulled down the road. And I think it also runs into the same challenge you mentioned before with CPP. If People don't want to take CPP late because they're giving up that income. Well, effectively with the ALDA, you're you're saying you can't touch that money for probably 15 years, right? Assuming you do mm-hmm. the ALDA at 70 or 71. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about how you would have that conversation with a client to sort of show them longevity risk and that this is potentially an effective way to help manage that longevity risk? I, I haven't thought about it a lot, Jason, just because I know that the products aren't there yet. Like I, I took note of it when when it was announced, like when they, when they talked about it, like it was, I think it was like 2018, maybe beginning of 2019. You're right. I can't remember if it's the 18 budget or the 19 budget. Time is such a. <laughs> yeah. It's such a strange concept this year. Right. Yeah. Um, I haven't had that conversation, but yeah, like that's going to be, that's going to be a difficult one because you're asking people to cut a check for this pot of money that is going to be like not touchable for 20, 30 years. When I talk to advisors that, try to position annuities for clients. It's, it's a similar dynamic where it's like, I'm cutting you a check right now for this, you know, itty bitty income stream. Right. You know, like that, the, 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 the thinking is, is hard for people to get over right now. So then imagine having that conversation and saying, okay, you're going to cut a check for this income stream that you're not going to get right now. You're going to have to wait 15, 20 years. Right. So, um, that, that is always the challenge for us as advisors though, isn't it? It's trying to get people to, to do things that maybe don't feel natural, but, but that, you know, and you, you believe that are in their best interests based on a plan that you built with them. Right. So, um, yes, like I'll have to come up with something, right. Like I'll have to figure out a way if I think it's in their best interest, find a way to show it to them in such a way that they're like, okay, yeah, I can see that it's in my best interest. Now, like the reframing, I think there's gotta be a way to reframe this problem. And this is something back to the Bonnie Jean McDonald paper whether we agree with what she did or not, I think she came up with a way to reframe the, mm-hmm. the CPP discussion, right? This idea of uh, loss of lifetime benefit, I think is what she's calling it. People fear losses more than they anticipate gains, right? 
So I like that. I think she, that was, that was the thing that caught me when I first saw the paper was, Oh, she's, she's reframed it for people. She said the same things. I think similarly before she put out some research last year or was it earlier this year, but, but she reframed it. Right. So maybe that will help. I hope so. I hope that that's a, a useful tool and I hope we can come up with something like that for longevity risk. Mm-hmm. Now, what about, you talked about like the Larry Swedro four horsemen. What do you see as being perceived as big risks today? Stuff that gets a lot of print, but doesn't actually matter that much. Yeah. So I, because I'm a fan of, of the evidence-based investing approach, like demonstrating that, you know, over long periods of time, you know, diversifying across asset classes and maintaining low costs in your investment portfolio, they make sense. So, you know, I think the industry in Canada, you know, there's a lot of money in the fund industry in Canada. So just the industry thinking that it's all about investments and, you know, the, the messaging like, Hey, buy this investment, it's better than that one. And you're going to, you know, all your dreams will come true if you're, you know, in this fund versus that fund. I think, you know, th- there's still a lot of that, but I think that's just, that's just business, right? That's human nature. Um, I think there's, there's still going to be a lot of that. I don't know if we can get away from that. Um, I think that the, you know, there's, there's, I wouldn't say it's inconsequential. Um, but I think that being an outsider coming from a different industry, coming into the financial planning industry, my observation was like the finance industry is very hard on itself. Like a lot of the things you read about the industry tend to focus on the bad things that are happening. Um, and of course, like we don't want to have, um, people giving clients bad advice. We want to have bad people leave the business and we want to have good people enter the business and people that are credentialed properly, that are supported properly, that are giving really, really good advice to people. Um, but I guess my feeling is like, there's still a, a fee, there's still a vilification almost of the advisor profession that I, I'd love to see change. I'd love to see, you know, again, you, you want the bad to leave. So if that process means that we get, um, you know, less people doing bad things for clients, um, and more people that are, you know, doing positive things for clients in the industry, like then that's a good outcome. But I think we want to encourage more participation, uh, in financial planning. We want people to enter the industry because there's going to be a huge, I believe there's going to be a huge gap of, of service for this industry as the industry, you know, transitions out, like people that are aging, professional advisors that are getting ready to retire. I think there's going to be a need for, for good financial planners. Um, and I believe that it's, it's, it's a fantastic profession. So my hope would be that the industry keeps a lens on the good things that are happening in the industry. Um, the good things that advisors are doing. And I think that, you know, you and I meeting through FPAC and the financial planners, um, association of Canada, I think that that's, you know, a fantastic place where a lot of good things are happening. And I'm excited about um, that news, but, but yeah, I think that, that was my, my big observation coming in was, man, these people are kind of like the, the industry can be very tough on itself. So let's maybe see if we can make it more of a positive place. Maybe a bit, maybe a bit kumbaya, but uh, that's just how I feel. I, I do agree with you. I think there, there is a tendency for people to say, if you don't do the same business model that I do, that somehow your, your business is inferior or you're harming clients. And I think it's easy to get caught up in that. So mm-hmm. it's a good point about that sort of self-harm or however you want to look at it. Yeah. And uh, my last question, Mark, you just want to take a moment here to plug your podcasts? Oh, sure. So, so I have this podcast. I started it um, at the beginning of 2019. Um, it's called Retire Me. 
and it's available on all the major platforms. And the, the genesis of it was pretty simple. It's I, I answer questions all the time from clients um, about retirement. So whenever I hear something two or three times, I think, okay, this is probably worth talking about on the podcast. And so uh, it runs every two weeks and it's pretty short. I think usually most episodes are like between 15 and 18 minutes. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a nice outlet for me and it, it lets me speak to clients when I don't see them. I send out a newsletter every month to my clients and I link to all the shows that I do. Um, and yeah, it's fun. It's something, something different. So, uh, thanks for letting me, uh, mention that. Thanks so much for doing this, Mark. Appreciate it. And, uh, I know a lot of the listeners, I specifically had requests to have somebody on to talk about retirement income planning. And I think your approach to it will be useful for lots of the folks listening. So thanks so for much, sure. Mark. That's great. Thanks, Jason. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. All right, lots of great stuff there from Mark. I would encourage you to read and listen to some of the podcasts that he had explicitly mentioned in there. Lots of good value. You can check the show notes as well for links to many of the resources that Mark had mentioned. number for today's episode is two. The number for today's episode is two. I wanted to take a moment to thank our regular listener and season one guest Ian. Ian's been really good about providing lots of feedback around when technical issues arise and just in general about uh, various user experiences with the podcast. So thanks, Ian. This particular episode came about because Ian had reached out to me and said, hey, do you have somebody who can come on and talk about retirement income planning? And when I saw Mark's post in the Financial Planning Association of Canada forums, I thought, that's perfect. Let's get uh, Mark on the podcast here. And I hope that it paid off for everybody. Thanks so much and join us again in two weeks when we'll have Steve McEwen from IHSA on for another group benefits episode. And then after that, we're going to get back to some individual content. Thanks so much. A few people help out with getting this podcast to air. 
Joseph Tong takes care of our editing and music and a bunch of the technology stuff in the background. Maria Nguyen gets all of our various accreditations done through the uh, various accrediting bodies. And Colton Nierbeski and his team make sure that the word gets out. They take care of the marketing and all that goes along with that. Mm-hmm.